Good morning. All right, let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your kingdom of love, for the freedoms and liberties that you give us. Uh, we here at, in our class and our ministry have the, the primary goal to glorify you, your kingdom, your character, to lift you up, to be a shining light in this world at this time in history, that hearts and minds be drawn to you. We, we pray your blessing and, and empowerment to be able to carry out this goal of glorifying your kingdom in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So before we get in the lesson, I, I want to, for, for those not uh, in the United States that are watching us online, uh, this weekend is the celebration of the 4th of July in America, which is a celebration of the independence and liberty and the foundations of freedom. One of the principles of God's kingdom that Christ died to preserve is the principle of freedom. The principle, because love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. You take freedom from people, you destroy love, and you destroy individuality. And Christ would not use power, God would not use power to put down the rebellion, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, which is truth, love, freedom. These are the big principles of God's kingdom. Throughout all human history, Satan's, all the kingdoms of the world are Satan's, the Bible tells us. And the kingdoms of the world throughout human history have always ruled through the ascendancy of a few ruling elites that will exploit and dominate the masses for the benefit of the elites. Uh, at the rise of the United States, it was the first time in human history where a government was established to restrain the big powers that will exploit the, the masses. And the three historic powers that always exploit the masses are the governments themselves, the religion, the pope, papal powers, the shamans, the religious elites, and the aristocracies, which are the big money barons, the, the, the railroad barons, the coal barons, the landowners. Okay, These three powers are the ones historically that always end up exploiting the masses, and the masses end up functioning as serfs or pawns, where their time and energy is used to enrich and empower the ruling elites. This is Satan's form of government. Christ's form of government is just the opposite. He who was equal with God did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the form of a servant, sacrificing himself for the purpose of uplifting the masses, not exploiting the masses. It's exactly opposite. And so the United States was founded on the principle of autonomy, that the people and the government and the and the and the churches are supposed to use their resources for the empowerment and uplifting of the people with good education with liberty with the opportunity to take your ingenuity and abilities and and apply them and develop yourself uh, it's the principle of autonomy that principle is at war with the principle of if you take somebody who is naive and with a good heart, it's paternalism. If you take somebody uh, who is, and that's the benevolent way to describe this principle, the malevolent way to prescribe this principle is autocracy, where you have ruling elites who know and they want to exploit. But either way, the paternalism principle is, well, these are children. They're not wise. They're not smart. They're not capable. We need to protect them. We need to care for them. And their motive might be good, but their method is still one of infantilizing and diminishing the growth of people rather than empowering and helping uplift the people. Uh, that is also in, in harmony with the group that are actually evil. They're... they're um, uh, dictator types, they want to control, they know what they're doing, and they want to exploit the masses for their own benefits. That's the autocracy side. Both of those are at war with the 
uh, autonomy side, which is the principle of the Constitution of the United States, which was designed to break up the government, to keep the government powers in check, which was designed to give power to the people and for the to restrain the church, separation of church and state. The church can't control the state and exploit the people like they did in the Dark Ages, and to restrain the aristocracies where they won't be these big monopolies that control everything. What's happening in America right now, and I want you to see this, because when America falls into the uh, ruling elite paternalism um, uh, side of things, autocracy side of things, there will be no place in the world for the independent, autonomous people of God to flee. And the final system sets up. And what is it that's driving this right now is liberalism. Okay, I'm just going to say it very clearly. Uh, you, if you didn't see it this week, one of the one of the officials from the Biden administration actually announced publicly. You can go find the video; it's out there. That the elevated and high gas prices are beneficial because they help bring about the his words, not mine, new liberal order. Liberal order, world order. Liberal order, the new liberal order. Okay. And this is what I've been saying all along. What you're seeing happening in our country under this current administration is not accidental. It is strategic. And what's the strategic? So how can you take people's liberties? There's multiple ways to do it. You can have a communist government who has an army and a military and and just comes in and controls you with force. That's one way to take liberty. You can take liberty in another way. By taking people's freedom, by taking away their economic power, taking their, their wealth from them. If you don't have wealth, you notice when you have less money, you have less freedom. Okay? So, so by raising gas prices, it causes everything to cost more. Inflation goes up. Now, I want you to understand the difference between the inflation that's happening now to the inflation that happened back at, under the Carter administration in the 70s. Inflation in the Carter administration was about 7%. But you, as a regular old, non-wealthy, non-Wall Street person who's just working hard and saving your money in your bank account, you got a little savings account over here and you got 10000 or 20000 or maybe you've been doing it for years, you got $100,000 in your savings account. During the Carter administration... While inflation was 7%, in your regular old savings account, you were still earning 7.25%. So as prices went up, your saving and buying power was still slightly more. It was still increasing. Right now, your uh, inflation is over 8%, and in your savings account, you're earning about 0.25% or less. Which means that if you have $10,000 right today and you can buy $10,000 worth of goods, a year from now, with an 8% inflation, you'll buy $9,200 worth of goods. You've lost 8% of your buying power. Now, that has no real impact on somebody who has $58 billion in their bank. It has an impact on middle America and low-income America. And the goal of this inflation, and this, so this inflation is structured purposely to, 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 to take wealth from those who can't have it while you have to pay more for things. And the, and if you've heard other liberals like Buttigieg say things like, in the future, you will own nothing and be happy. Have you heard this? That's, if you, if you have any sense of history, that was the Middle Ages. The people were serfs. They owned nothing. They lived in a cottage owned by the earl or the duke that allowed them to live there as long as they went out and farmed or hunted or did whatever the duke wanted them to do. Okay? That is the vision of the liberal elites. 
The paternalists. Oh, we're, these are deplorable people. They're not very bright. They're not very smart. We need to provide for them. We need to give them health care. We need to give them a job. We need to give them food. We need to give, give, give because they can't get, they can't earn, earn, earn. And so this is, this is liberalism. It's, and it is, it is strategic. It's purposeful to destroy independence and autonomy. There's another way they do it. You may have heard, uh, Dr. Peter, Dr. Peter McCullough. He has now been sent a letter by the American um, Board of Internal Medicine. He's an internal medicine doctor, board certified, that they have opened an investigation on him to revoke his board certification for the lectures that he has been giving. In my view, they, they won't ultimately win this case, but understand, giving lectures publicly is a free speech issue. It is actually not practicing medicine. What I'm doing here, I'm not practicing medicine. None of you are my patients. There's no doctor-patient relation. I can't be practicing malpractice here today because I'm not... So all of his lectures don't even fall under the purview of that organization. So why are they doing it? (laughs) Understand, here's why they're doing it. Intimidation. They want to send a message to the rest of the doctors under their... All you have internal medicine. You better stay in line and and, and speak the narrative that we approve of or we're going to take your credentials from you. So any other thinking doctor out here who might speak, like, you know what, it's not worth the hassle. I'll just kind of fall in line, do what I'm said. It's an intimidation factor. It's a way of taking liberties through intimidation. But also notice the methodology and why they're doing it. You see, historic medicine, when you have honest practitioners... It is, it, just look at the history. Constantly you'll have practitioners come forward with a hypothesis, a theory, a treatment, a, a, an assessment, a diagnosis of what they think is going on that they put out there. They might do a study and they put it out there. And, and somebody else reviews it, critiques it, checks it out, comes out of it and says, you know what, you're wrong here. And here's why. This is how medicine advances. And, and, the, and the honest practitioner goes, thank you, you're right. That's a better way to understand. You've got new data I didn't see. And you're constantly updating you. And so if Dr. Peter McCullough's presentations are not actually evidence-based, scientific, uh, then the historic way you deal with that is you simply say, hey, Dr. McCullough, here's the data. You, you forgot to include this. You're missing this point. You're not allowing for this. And you show him and things advance. And he, and he would go, oh, you're right. But they aren't doing that. Why are they not doing that? Because the evidence is not on their side, and when the evidence is not on someone's side, then you have to use a different method. And what's the method? Administrative authority over. And this is exactly as the Dark Ages Church did with Martin Luther. When Martin Luther presented his truth from Scripture, uh, he said, hey, if I'm wrong, show me from Scripture. Show me the evidence. I'll be glad to correct it if you can show me I'm wrong. They couldn't show him as wrong, so what did they do? Church authority uh, over him. That's what's happening now. Uh, with Dr. Peter McCullough and others, the system controlled by liberal elites uh, who have a certain vision of what the future should look like are using authority to take away liberties. I just want everybody to understand this. You see this in the school system. I could go on all day about what's happening in our society. Now, I am not actually advocating for the other side. If you've read my books, uh, not my books, my my blogs, uh, where I describe King of the North and King of the South... Okay, the, the prophecy of Daniel 11, the king of the south is leftism, liberalism, godlessness. And the last movements in this long history through history, uh, and Satan has had his two antagonistic forces throughout history, godlessness, evolutionism, and so forth, uh, communism in modern times on this side, and 
religious imperialism as the king of the north, using the power of the state to coerce and force people into religious dogma, uh, which was the Dark Ages church, but also um, Babylon did this and Rome did this, and you see this through history. And both of these are, are his forces fighting each other, and the beautiful land represents God's people. Okay, God's people is not in either one. Satan is fighting over back and forth between these and the middle and God's people are caught in the middle. And, and, the, and the idea here is that he is doing this stuff to get the, the people in the beautiful land to pick a side, join liberalism, join religious imperialism and fight the other side. That's the trap. Okay, I can tell you the people and it's not about standing for a principle. It is about what method you're willing to use to advance the principle. Uh, so, so standing up against the um, uh, some, some of the liberal agendas that we see, like um, standing up against what I think is fraudulent presentation of the transgender issue. I think there's a lot of fraud in that. There actually is male and there is female. There is something known as a man and there is something known as a woman. And to suggest that there is no such thing, that's just a mental construct, and anybody in their head can decide they want to be something else, that is fantasy. That's fantasy. That doesn't mean there aren't people with gender dysphoria or gender identity problems. There are. Because, and the reason there is, because there's actually a man and there's actually a woman. <laughs> okay? That's why, they're, that's why they can be confused, because they're actually those things. Okay? To stand up against that and speak the truth is godly. But the temptation will be then to join with the king of the north to use imperial coercion to punish people who are on the other side and see it differently. And that is the trap, and we have to resist that trap. So it doesn't mean that we don't stand for truth, but we do it by presenting the truth in love and leaving people free. And that's what the 4th of July celebration is about in America. It is about liberty, liberty of conscience. And that's why the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a religious liberty department. That's why it has a liberty magazine. And it's very so sad that during COVID that the principles of liberty were not advanced as consistently as the kingdom of God would have them advanced during the entire mandate process that ended up causing more harm and more death than, than any benefit it provided. So... I guess I'll get into the lesson now. Sorry about my little. <laughs> but celebrate liberty. It's the principle of God's kingdom. Okay? And so anything I say in here, I, I wouldn't coerce somebody to believe what I believe. No, I would leave you free. It's okay. You can disagree with me. It's all right. And I would, and I would resist the government's control to mandate other people believe and practice the way I do. I would work against that. Even if they were advancing a principle that I agree with. It is not the principle, it is the method, the method, and that we can't win God's cause using Satan's methods. Amen. And, the, and, and, and you can never advance God's cause through human governments, because human governments always coerce. That's how they advance, and we can't do it. Liberty. Celebrate the, the freedoms that, that, that this Constitution was designed to give the people, and resist activities that are designed to restrict and diminish those liberties is, is the point. All right, Sabbath's lesson, first paragraph in this lesson, which is a quotation from the book Ministry of Healing, reads the following. In the full light of day, and in the hearing of the music of other voices, the caged bird will not sing the song of his, ma his master seeks to teach him. He learns a snatch of this, a trill of that, but never a separate and entire melody. 
But the master covers the cage and places it where the bird will listen to the one song he is to sing. In the dark, he tries and try, he tries and tries again to sing that song until it is learned and he breaks forth in perfect melody. Then the bird is brought forth and ever after he can sing that song in the light. God, thus God deals, thus God deals with his children. He has a song to teach us. And when we have learned it amid the shadows of affliction, we can sing it ever afterward. What does this concept mean? What is being communicated here? Is God the one who sometimes, I use the word sometimes, brings us into dark places? And if God brings us into dark places, what would be his purpose? Teach us trust. To teach us trust. Did the master put the songbird in the dark to punish it for wrongdoing? No. Does God lead us to dark places to punish us? No. Have you ever heard somebody in a dark place? God must be punishing you. Yeah. Is punishment for sin something that God is required to inflict? Uh, don't worry. There's a camera. <laughs> If God were not to use his power to inflict punishment for sin, even at the very end, don't worry about it, Zoe. Just leave it. Yeah, it's already, it's unplugged anyway. If God were not to use his power to inflict punishment for sin, would there be no punishment for sin? Did y'all hear the question? Okay. Yes. If God were not to use power to inflict punishment for sin, would there be no punishment for sin? Or is there still a punishment for sin? Yes. Yes, yes there is. Uh, the point, but you understand that it is a common teaching in Christianity that the punishment for sin comes from God. Yeah. Okay? <clears throat> read what you sow. But yes, exactly right. Did you all read my blog this week? Yes. Yeah. If you didn't, I encourage you, Reaping the Whirlwind. Reaping the Whirlwind. I think you'll enjoy it. What, <clears throat> what is the purpose of the master putting the bird in the dark? What was his purpose? No distraction, so the bird can learn the, song. learn the song. How does that apply to us? Legalize, legalize, eye for an eye. An eye for an eye. What song does God wish to teach us? An eye for an eye song? No. No, no. The song of love. The melody of love, yes. Does the prophecy, this is prophecy from Revelation connect with the illustration about the songbird. Here's, here's Revelation 14.3. Does it connect with the songbird? And if you see a connection, I want you, want you to tell me. It's about the 144,000. It says, the 144,000 sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song uh, except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Does that connect with what we just read about in the story of the songbird? Well, what's the connection? How does, how does that work? Why is it only the 144,000 can sing this song? It's like, hey, I got a new hymn. I got a new song. I can teach it to you, can't I? Why can't anybody learn this song except the 144,000? Because they're not Yeah, yeah. yeah but that's exactly right. <laughs> it is the song of their experience. That's what it is. And you can't sing a song of someone else's experience. You can only sing the song of your experience. And that's why they're the only ones who can sing it. That's exactly right. So what is the song 
God wants us to learn through our experiences here. Love and trust in him. That's it. That's right. Love and trust in him. Living out his methods in the face of opposition. That the people in the beautiful land don't choose to side with the king of the south, liberalism, or the king of the north, religious imperialism, and begin singing those songs. No, no. We sing the song of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is not of this world. Does the idea that God leads us into dark places to cut out the distractions of this world in order to learn from him the melody of love and sing the song of heaven mean that all dark experiences are God's leading us? No. Did God lead the prodigal son to go off into wild living and end up in a pigsty? No, he didn't. Did God lead Jonah to run away? To run away. But did he... Bring the storm and the fish that Jonah ended up in a dark place inside the fish. Didn't he? It says it was very dark in there. No candlelight in the stomach of the fish. So God intervened to bring Jonah to a dark place, but only because Jonah wasn't going in the light direction to start with. The lesson fo- Sunday's lesson focuses on the journey of the Israelites that uh, when they took uh, their journey they took from Egypt. Uh, they had just gone through the ten plagues. Uh, Pharaoh finally releases and relents and releases them, and then the pillar of fire is leading them by night, and the cloud is leading them by day, and God leads them straight to the Red Sea and into what appears to be a trap. They're at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. And God led them there, directly, specifically. Couldn't God have acted to prevent Pharaoh's army from leaving Egypt so the people were never frightened like this? Couldn't he have done that? Couldn't God have opened an earthquake and swallowed up that army before they even got close to Israel so they never even saw the army coming? Couldn't he have had a a fortress of rock come up out of the ground and, and around the whole Israelite? Couldn't he have done that? So why did God lead them to the water and allow the army to bear down on them and frighten them like this? Why did he do it? He wanted them to learn to trust him. Yes, he wanted them to exercise trust. They needed to be put in a position where their human abilities would not serve to resolve the problem so that he could deliver them so that they could gain confidence or trust in him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also to gain glory by the miracle that he performed for them, thus um, encouraging their faith to be able to look back and say, well, God delivered us Yes. this time. He will deliver me for the next thing that comes up in our personal experience. Well said, because he was doing more than just delivering them from Egyptian bondage, wasn't he? He was trying to deliver their hearts and minds from the control of fear and selfishness. Yes, which required they exercise trust or faith in him. Well said. Does God ever lead us to places where we are helpless and cannot overcome in our own strength? Notice I said lead us to. Does he ever lead us to those places? This wasn't like the prodigal son who put himself in that position. God led them to this place. They were following God, and he led them. Does God ever lead us to places? I'm going to say the answer is yes, he does. For the same reason for them. 
He never leads us to a place where we will be defeated. He leads us to places where we will have victories through our trust in him. Understand that. He did not lead them there to be destroyed by the Egyptians. He led them there so he could deliver them and, and strengthen their faith in him. And they overcame. And the Egyptians were destroyed there. Evil will not prevail. Evil will not prevail. If we pray to God for more faith, Lord, please help me have more faith. What is required in order for God to positively answer that question for you and you gain more faith? What will now be required? It is a law, one of God's design laws, that strength comes through exercise. If you don't use it, you... So, yeah, so if we want to get stronger muscles, we got to lift weights. And you start out because you're really weak with some five-pound weights, but after working with those for a couple of weeks, they're nothing. So the trainer puts 10-pound weights on you. And that's a little harder. Okay, i got to work harder. A little sweat, a little burn the muscle. And after a couple of weeks, 10-pound weights are nothing. So he puts 15-pound weights on you. And after a couple of weeks, he's got 20-pound weights on you. Do you look at the trainer and go... Why do you keep burdening me? I just, I just got the victory over this. And you keep throwing another burden on me. How many times when we get one victory, do we actually have another obstacle of life issue to handle? Are you praying for more faith? Father, my faith is fine. <laughs> Just put me in your wheelbarrow and carry me home. (laughs) Somebody had a hand? Yes. Trials can be opportunities for advancement. That's exactly right. Exactly. That's why why it happens. So what will God do if we ask for more faith and more strength? He will bring more pressure or weight or trials for us to fall on our knees Bring before him and handle in faith. Is this an abuse of power on God's part? Is it punishment for sin? Why doesn't God just, when you ask for faith, why doesn't he just pour out the Holy Spirit into your physical being and and neurologically adjust some neurons to give you a feeling of greater confidence? That's not a feeling. Well said. Yeah, well said. She said, faith is not a feeling. Well said. See, genuine faith is confidence, trust, loyalty, devotion, despite how we feel in the moment. And that might lead you to trust in yourself and not God. What is genuine faith based upon? Experience. Or trials and stuff. Experience, that's right. Evidence, truth, that's exactly right, all of those. We might have a cognitive understanding of what faith is, like you might understand what swimming is, but if you never get in the water, you don't know how to swim, even though you understand what it is. And many people understand what faith is, but they never actually get in the water to exercise their faith. Yes? Isn't the ultimate exercise of all of it to have an intimate relationship with God? And an intimate relationship 
that actually... What's the point of faith with something that you don't have a relationship with? Why would you want it? So many people have faith in something other than God. So you can have faith that is, and that, that is not actually in God. You can have faith in a payment. I have faith that Jesus paid the price for me. That's not a relationship. I have faith in the scientific method. I have faith that... See, faith is just a confidence and a certainty in something. And the living faith, though, is relational faith. It's an act of faith that requires us to make choices... I'm saying you have faith in science because you want to be healed. I, I think the living faith that you're talking about, the only reason you would have that is to have a relationship with God. Because otherwise, what's, what is my... The, the, if the end goal of faith is just faith, it's a, it's a worth... No, I'm going to suggest something different. That our faith is a result of the relationship with God, not to have a relationship with God. Because you can have a relationship with somebody who has cheated on you, lied, exploited, taken advantage. You have a relationship. It might be your own brother, sister, spouse, child. And you have a relationship. You have no faith in them at all. I'm talking about a good relationship. <laughs> but, yeah. But no, no, no. But, no. but, but my, my, my point is that genuine faith in any person, including God, which is confidence or trust, comes from the quality of the person in the relationship. So we're not having faith to have a relationship. The relationship with God, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. So coming to know God is the basis is for our faith because he is so good, so loving, so kind, so true, so trustworthy, so reliable. That is really the basis, isn't it? But you're right. It is relational. There's no question. And that's what leads what, to what I call, and some other people call, living faith. Living faith is a faith that is active, working, that requires us to exercise our trust in the one we have a faith relationship with, we will be put in situations where we trust him with the outcomes. And we surrender the control of the future and how things turn out as we exercise authority, last fruit of the Spirit, and kratia, self-control, and within krat, uh, a power, like autocrat, democrat, and kratia, the Greek, we, we exercise control over ourselves and government, but we trust him with how it turns out. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plains of Dura, they made the choice in governance itself not to bow. They trusted God with how it turned out. Yes. The five wise versions, we're going to actually, it's, they're in the lesson for next week. We will talk about them, but, but the five wise, yes, they exercise faith in God and they develop a mature character as part of what that is. And, and that's why it can't be transferred to the other foolish versions because you can't give your character to another person. But we'll talk about that next week. Hand in the back some more. So God allows events or brings circumstances that provide us the opportunity to exercise our faith, and in doing so, our faith grows stronger. That's how your faith grows stronger. Which takes greater faith? To be in a difficult circumstance, reach out to God, and God delivers you just as you desired. Thank you, God. You're an amazing God. Or to be in a difficult circumstance, reach out to God, and you do not get the deliverance you've asked for. Which takes greater faith? The last one. 
So if you're asking for greater faith, you actually may not get the deliverance you're asking for. There's this great lie in Christianity. If, you, if you've asked for a miracle and you don't get it, it's because your faith isn't enough. It's actually the opposite. If you look at miracles in Scripture, most of the time the miracles in Scripture, most of the time, are done through the strong in faith for the weak in faith. Jesus' miracles, how many miracles did Jesus perform for himself? Zero, zero. He had strong faith, but the miracles are not done for him. They were done for others. What about the apostles? The miracles were primarily for the... How many of the apostles? Only John actually had a miracle to prevent him from being martyred, according to church tradition and some history. He was thrown in boiling oil and he didn't die, so they put him in the Isle of Patmos. But Peter didn't get delivered from crucifixion. Paul didn't get delivered from being beheaded. Yeah, there were certain miracles when the gates and the prisons opened and they walked out. But what was that for? That was for the advancement of the gospel. That was for taking the truth to many more people who still needed to hear it. That was the purpose of that miracle. And you look through history. When the, when the fire fell at Mount Carmel, big miracle. Was that fire, that miracle, for Elijah? Or was it for all the people who didn't know whether they should worship Baal or Yahweh? So most of the time in Scripture, I'm not going to say exclusively, most of the time, the miracles are for the weak in faith. Notice, weak in faith does not mean lost, does not mean in rebellion against God. It means people who are still growing. They, they, they're looking for God. They want to do the right thing. They're not sure. They don't know how to figure And so God meets us where we are and will often bring miracles to help us along the way. But as we grow in faith, we become less dependent on the need for miracles because our internal faith in God is established on a knowledge and a relationship with him. And we know who he is. We understand his methods. We love his law. And we don't need a miracle anymore to persuade us that he's good. Remember Paul prayed for a, prayed for a miracle to heal, heal the thorn in his flesh? He didn't get it. Um, let's see. Uh, third paragraph of Sunday's lesson. Following the pillar doesn't assure of constant happiness. It also can be a hard experience because training, uh, training in righteousness takes us to places that test our hearts, which is so naturally deceitful. During these difficulties, the key to knowing when we are truly following God is not necessarily the absence of trial or pain, but rather an openness to God's instructions and a continual submission of our minds and hearts to his leading. I think this was well said. I think it was very well said. And why, when we're following God, following the pillar of fire, following God's leading in our life, why will we have obstacles, struggles, stresses, and often pain. Why? Strengthen us. It's all back to Partly what we said, to help us grow in our faith. That's exactly part, that's part of the pie of why they're obstacles. But we're also in a war zone, aren't we? Mm -hmm. There are enemies who want to attack us. Well, yeah. It's also sometimes because people see how you react to that problem, whatever. And your reaction either strengthens their faith in God or lessens it. As you have more trials and you have more faith and people see this in you, and it's like, well, where does she get that from? It's because God gives So it was a witness. Yeah, yeah. In the back? 
Uh, James says, My brethren, count it all joy or rejoice when you fall into various trials and tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance or perseverance. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. Well said. That's exactly one of the reasons for the trials and difficulties. Exactly what we were just talking about. Helps us grow, helps us mature, helps us strengthen, helps the dross be burned out of our characters, purifies the character and goal. All these metaphors. Was that true for Job? Job in chapter 1, we have a revelation that God actually says Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. And then Job went through a lot of trials. It was Job's trials for the purpose of purifying Job's character and helping him mature? No. So, so you're exactly right. It, it, it is true, exactly what you read. But it is not an exclusive truth, meaning we would err if we said every difficulty is brought for that purpose. It's not true that every but many of them are. And we should, we should rejoice at those opportunities. You're exactly correct. Um, <laughs> and we, also, we also have obstacles and struggles and stresses because we live in a world of sin. And, and the Paul says in Romans, all nature groans under the weight of sin. And God's people are not given magical powers to avoid the pain that sin has brought upon the world. Are we? If, if you think we are, just give it a few years and your body's going to inform you. Age is going to take its toll. And there's pain with age, isn't there, people? There really is. And it's not pain because of your active sin of some kind. It's pain because there's sin in the world. Because we're decaying in a way that God never designed Adam and Eve. We were to have total and eternal access to the tree of life and never have degradation of our physiology. And we'll have that one day. If you read, we will eat of the fruit and we will grow up and be restored. Our bodies will become perfect and healthy. We'll never age and we'll never have aches and pains. We are not given magical powers to avoid the pains, but we are given, not magical, we are given supernatural power from the Holy Spirit to overcome sin, overcome fear and selfishness in our hearts, minds, characters, despite the trials and difficulties of the world. That's what we're given. That we mature and become like Christ in character in spite of the trials and difficulties. Not to escape the trials and difficulties. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. And sometimes we have difficulties in the world, sometimes, because we make either rebellious or foolish choices that make things harder on us than God would have brought us to himself if we would have followed him. And we must learn from our own choices that our actions have consequences and that when we don't follow God and don't listen to God, it actually doesn't result better for us. It results worse. Monday's lesson points us to Exodus 17, in which the Israelites were traveling through the desert of sin. Interesting name for the desert, the desert of sin. And and there was no water. They began to grumble against Moses, who went uh, to the Lord, and the Lord instructed him to strike the rock, and God brought water from the rock for the people. But the lesson points out that they were following the pillar, again, which stopped at a place in the desert with no water. Just like the Red Sea stopped and then the Pharaoh. They followed God to a place in a desert with no water. Why would God stop at such a place? Consider. Consider. Put yourself in their position for a moment. You're walking who knows 
what, eight hours a day, sandals, hot sun. Maybe you got a cloud to kind of protect you, but it's still kind of, it's arid, it's dry, you're in a desert. Your children are thirsty, their faces are flushed. Your, your water skin is empty. Your herds are, are getting fatigued. What would you do? There's no water anywhere. What would you do in that circumstance? Complain. Complain. Thank for one honest person. Give her a gold star. <laughs> the rest of you, we know better. Right? No, I'm not just kidding. No, I think we would be very much tempted to complain, right? Looking, well, yeah, yeah. So why didn't God lead them like any good caravan leader to one oasis to another? Did he not know where the oasises were? He didn't get a map before he started? Was God trying to upset the people? No, he was trying to... Was he punishing them? No, he's trying to what? Teach them to have faith in him that he's going to lead them... Teach them to have to. Did they have enough evidence yet in their own experiences to trust him? Well, if you go back a couple chapters in Exodus to chapter 15, you will have the story after crossing the Red Sea where the God led them uh, to the uh, desert of Shur. And at the desert of Shur, there was uh, a, a, a body of water that called Marah. And it was called Marah because the water was bitter and undrinkable. And the people complained. There's no water to drink. It's bitter. We can't drink. God instructed them to take Moses, take a piece of wood, throw this piece of wood into the water, and the water became sweet. Do you think that wood like had some type of like chemical in it? And it was like, uh, you know, it was like it, it was one of those super filtration systems that you can buy, and it was doing osmotic filtration on the water to produce. Is that, is that what was happening? Was it wood? This was a miracle, right? So he throws a piece of wood in, and the water becomes potable or drinkable. This is their experience. They already had this experience. Do you think that could be beneficial for them when they come to the next desert and they have no water? Do you notice how God leads them? No, notice the leading. Notice the leading of the lesson here. He leads them to a place where there's actual water. Okay, There's something to work with, at least. And God purifies or cleanses the water because it's bitter. They, they can't do anything. It's water, but we can't do anything with it. We can't, we can't drink it. But God, but the next place he leads them to, there's nothing even to work with around here. There's no, there's no water. You, you see, it's, it's, it's a building of faith by, by making the, the situation even more apparently difficult for us, right? right. Do you notice that's, is that five-pound weights? Mm-hmm. Ten-pound weights. Yes. Right. <laughs> this is what's happening. This is a life journey. There's an object lesson here for all of us. That's all hand somewhere? Yes. Was the top pyramid the heaviest to hold all the other pyramid stones in place? Uh, I, I don't know anything about pyramid building. <laughs> well, no, they just experienced being released from, from the, uh, Egypt with all the yeah. <laughs> problems they had. So, so did the... Pardon? They were saved... When they were in Egypt, when they saw all of the different things that happened there, but God saved them through all that, and they still didn't learn. You're exactly right. We, we have nothing to fear for the future, yes. except we forget how God has led in the past. Yes. Amen. 
And one of Satan's traps, I want you to, I want you, one of his tricks, one of his tricks, one of his traps, one of his warfare strategies is to get us to focus on the problem. Yes. Real or imagined. In Israel's case, they were in a desert without water. That's a real problem. It's a real, it's not imagined, but it could be either, be one, either one, real or imagined. And we focus on the problem so much, we take our eyes off of Christ. We look at the water, or we look back at our friends, we, we don't look at Christ, and we begin to sink into the water. One of his strategies bring problems, real problems, and we focus on them so much that we forget that we're not alone. Especially if we're already following God into a circumstance. He's brought us to, what's the old saying? The waters never part until your feet get wet. If you remember in Israel, when they would go out to war and they were carrying the ark, the priests, they would come up to a body of water, a river, and as soon as their feet touched the water, then the water parted for the army to go through. But they had to have faith to step in. And then God acts to empower. If we're following God, he always provides the resources to succeed. Yes? It's also, I think, a perspective, right? Because their life was already done as slaves. And then at the sea, at the, before the parting of the sea, their life was already dead. The thing is, is that rather than being grateful that they have more life than they actually should be given, they're constantly feeling entitled that they should have more. Their, their focus was never the fact that they were already dead. And I think that's the way with Christ. It's like we're already dead without Christ. And we're constantly looking for our entitled state. I think that's, and that's the core of, of sin, self-centeredness. Imagine Moses' faith. Just put yourself in. You are told by God in whatever way God told Moses, face-to-face or whatever, but you're told by God today, next time you're at church, that you need to walk up to the front of the sanctuary, take your cane and hit the pulpit so water will come out. <laughs> you laugh, but think that through. Might there be some temptation? Well, what happens if it doesn't happen? Will they laugh at me? Will I, will I look like a fool? Will you have some temptation along those lines? Think about Moses' faith. Didn't he exercise faith to do what he was told? To hit a rock with, with water coming out? Yes? One of the things that me and Tara do, um, just because we're learning these lessons of one trial leads to a bigger trial, and we keep a record of how God delivered us in this situation, and we date it, and we've done that for the past three years. And so when we come to the new level of devil, then we (laughs) look back on the situations that he got us through and said he delivered us here, he delivered us here, and he will deliver us. from. Well, well said. Excellent. Remember how the Lord is... I think it's a great thing to keep a journal like that. So Tuesday's lesson, uh, in Tuesday's lesson, it focuses our attention on Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Now let's read the second paragraph. It says, Luke 4 is the beginning of the, of the story of Jesus' temptation by Satan, and it brings some difficult issues to our attention. At first glance, now, now, I just really pay attention, pay attention here, okay? At first glance, it appears that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into temptation. However, God never tempts us. Rather, As we have been seeing, God does lead us to crucibles of testing. 
What is striking in Luke 4 is that the Holy Spirit can lead us to times of testing that involve being exposed to Satan's fierce temptations. At such time when we feel these temptations are so strongly, we may misunderstand and think we have been following God, uh, have not been following God correctly. But this is not necessarily true. And uh, we'll just stop there. What do you think of this idea? Do you, did, did any part of your brain go, wait a minute? Do you see them make, trying to make a distinction between tempting and testing? Are they making a distinction here? Are they suggesting that God did not lead Jesus out there to be tempted? They're not suggesting it, they're stating it. <laughs> they let him, God led him to be tested, but he didn't lead him to be tempted because God does not tempt anyone, it says. Do you see the... Um, Merging of two separate yet subtly similar ideas, but they're separate. They're different. That merging them together causes a misrepresentation of reality and causes confusion. And that's what this paragraph does. It it actually confuses. It doesn't enlighten. What is the merging of the two issues? Time of light, right? Dark time left. So are, are the lessons suggesting that God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit's purpose was to test Jesus... And that they didn't realize if they led him, if they led Jesus into the wilderness, he would be tempted. That, that they led him to be tested, but they were taken by surprise when the devil tempted him. I was like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Hmm. You know, the scripture says explicitly the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Did, God, did the Holy Spirit know that's what was going to happen there? So did the Holy Spirit lead him to be tempted? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit leading him out there to be tempted? Who did the tempting? Oh, so the scripture, God tempts no one, is still true. God did not tempt him. But he led him to be tempted. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as in heaven, lead us us not into temptation. Well, 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 well. Do we have a conflict here? The Holy Spirit is clearly leading Jesus into temptation. But we are to pray that the Holy Spirit not lead us into temptation. How do you reconcile those ideas? God is not a God of confusion. That's right. So how do we understand the truth in these ideas? Jesus stands in a unique position. Jesus came as the second Adam to confront overcome and destroy Satan and sin. You and I never have to win that battle. By his death, he destroys him, holds the power of death that is the devil. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, the Bible says. Jesus had to come and face those temptations as a human and overcome them using his human abilities via trusting his father. And you see it at the cross also, where he said, Father, into your hands, I surrender my spirit. He exercised faith and trust in the face of the temptations that he faced as a human. Understand, God cannot be tempted, it says in James 1. So when Christ was tempted, his divinity was not being tempted. It was his humanity that was being tempted. And he did this for the purpose of purging the sin, the the death-causing condition from the humanity he inherited through his mother. 
And he was able to succeed because he had a humanity that he received through his Father, the Holy Spirit, that was capable of resisting those desires or temptations. That was part of his mission. He had to do it. And God led him to fulfill his mission to be our Savior, and therefore God led him into the place where he would confront and be tempted to overcome as our Savior. It was necessary. But it is not necessary for us. Christ has overcome for us. So we pray, lead us not into temptation. And so when the devil tempts us, it's not God leading us there to be tempted. And no temptation will take you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted more than you're able. But with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Pray that prayer if God wouldn't do that anyway. To ask him to not lead us into temptation. So who's, when you pray to God, who is, is being, is, who is the primary person that is being influenced by your prayers? You're aligning your heart's desire with the Lord. You're putting your place in a place where you're willing to follow him and trust him where he leads. That, that, that is the primary purpose. And when difficulties come, you, you, know, you are, having done this, you know, well, this is not the Lord leading me to be tempted. This, this is something else. Maybe he's leading me to a place so that I can exercise my faith because he wants me to mature. But that's not a temptation to sin. That is an opportunity for growth, like James talked about and you quoted earlier. It's a difference. But when you think about the temptations of Christ, now he's tempted in every way just like we are. You ever think about that? Think about your temptations. They're the most difficult temptations for you to overcome. Those that come from some external source to participate in a sin that you've never actually ever done before. Or are the most difficult ones, the ones you have actually made habit in your life and you're struggling to get the victory over those sinful habits. Which are the worst for you? Did Jesus have any sinful habits that tempted him? He absolutely did not. No. So if he didn't have any sinful habits, how could he be tempted in every way like us? I, I heard somebody say it. Because he took upon himself the nature that tempts us. And you see in Gethsemane, that he struggled with powerful human emotions. The Bible says that no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted. We're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Those desires or feelings tempt us. And those habits inflame those desires and feelings. Jesus in Gethsemane, did he have powerful human emotions that tempted him? And if he acted on his emotions, if he did what his feelings wanted him to do, what would he have done? Gone through the cross or not gone through the cross? And who would he have saved then? He would act to save who? Self. Self, and that's the core of sinfulness, self-centeredness, me first. At the cross, you see the same thing? Where every, if you go and read the stories, every time he is tempted, it's save yourself, come down off the cross, we'll worship you. It's the act, it is the, it is the temptation to act self-centeredly. That was the temp, over and over again. And that is the core. He also was tempted with hunger. He was tempted with fatigue. He was tempted with tiredness. He was tempted with all the weaknesses that we were tempted with. You, you see that through scripture. And so, yes, he was tempted in every way just like we are. But he did not come to face the exact circumstances of everybody's life. He came as the second Adam to overcome the carnal infection and restore God's design law of love into the species human. Yes? Uh, David said something that I really like in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, that's God, and He shall direct your paths. Well said. Yep, David got it right. I agree with him. (laughs) Exactly right. He will direct our paths. Does that mean we always listen to his directions? So he's directing. Sometimes we have a hard time following. That's, that's the breakdown, isn't it? The breakdown is never with God. If there's a breakdown, it's always with us. Yes or no? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the last paragraph states, sometimes when, the cru- when in the crucible, we get burned rather than purified. It is therefore very comforting to know that when we crumple under temptation, we can hope again because Jesus stood firm. The good news is that because Jesus is our sin bearer, uh, the good news is that because Jesus is our sin bearer, because he paid the penalty for our failure and endured the temptations, whatever it was, because he went through the crucible worse than any of us will ever face, we are not cast off or forsaken of God. There is hope even for the chief of sinners. How do you understand this paragraph? What's the question we need to ask? What law lens? What law lens do you read this through? If you read this idea of Jesus being our sin bearer and paid the penalty through the human law lens, human law made up rules that require judicial oversight and external enforcement, thus the ruling authority becomes the inflictor of punishment upon those who would not otherwise reap it if the authority didn't put it upon them. That's human law. That's Roman. That's a Roman infection to the Bible and Christian thought. That is the common view of almost all Christianity. If you have that view, then Jesus was placed in the sinner's position, was uh, all the acts of sin, all the bad deeds everybody's ever going to put on him. God then uses his power to punish him. He pays a penalty to the ruling authority. He's in heaven offering his blood, his sacrifice to, to the ruling authority to pay the debt so the ruling authority won't be angry at us and punish us. That's all pagan. It's not Christian. Yes, it's ugly and it's pagan. If we return to worshiping the creator, though, we understand that his laws are the laws upon which the creator built reality. Space, time, energy, matter, life. The laws upon which reality operate and function, and they emanate from the character of God, who is love, and the core is the principles of love. And if you violate those laws, you break them, you cut yourself off from the channels of blessing, you cut yourself off from the source of life, and the only result without remedy from the Creator, without restoration and redemption and healing from the Creator, without connecting us back to the Creator. The only result is ruin and death. And Christ came to reconnect humanity back to the source of life. And in Jesus Christ, the person, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the species human was perfected in his humanity. Understand that very clearly. Jesus did not come as a second Tim Jennings. He came as a second Adam. He became the new head of the entire species. And we, through faith, can be grafted in. He is the vine, we're the branches. We can be grafted into Christ, and if we're grafted in through faith and open the heart and trust, then the Holy Spirit takes the victory of Christ and reproduces it in us. We're reborn with new hearts, new motives, new desires, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the law is written in the heart and mind. We have circumstances of the heart from the corruptions of this world. We're reestablished in righteousness, and he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that's what Christ accomplished for us. And was there a penalty to be paid? Was there a penalty to be paid? Well, he died on the cross. 
To whom was it paid? If your child did something either ignorantly or purposely, maybe they were, they were depressed and they, and they took an overdose of something to try to kill themselves, but they didn't actually die, they just destroyed their kidneys. And now they're in renal failure. Do you stop loving your child? Do you need to get out your belt and beat your child to punish them for their disobedience to the laws of health? Do you need to inflict any punishment upon them? What would you do if this were your child? Would you want to save them? And would you donate a kidney, if you could, and it matched, to save your child? And if you donated that kidney, and, it, and it, of course it works, and your child now is no longer renal failure, they have a kidney that works, could we say you paid a price to save your child? Is that price a legal price? No. There is a price paid, an absolute, infinite price paid. But it was not paid to God. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ bodily. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect unity, together carrying out the plan to fix the sin problem in man and restore us back into unity with him. This was no division amongst the Godhead. And Christ was abandoned by the Father on the cross because the only way Christ could destroy the carnal infection that Adam put in the species was to kill it. And he killed it with love. No one can take my life. I give it freely. The law of love, giving freely, sacrificing himself. As a human who was perfect and sinless in every way, he would not give in to the carnal drives. And at the cross, that, that, that condition, that, that element, that infection was, was destroyed. And he rose on the third day in a new humanity that he perfected. And thus he becomes exalted. This is what he achieved. It's a reality. And he paid that horrible price. And, 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 he, and, and he gave up. We, won't, we don't know yet. When we get to heaven, we're going to discover more. But what some elements we can know. He was a, uh, prior to his incarnation, Christ had omnipresence. He could be anywhere. Coming incarnate, for God so loved the world, he loaned his son to humanity for 33 and a half years. No, he gave him for all eternity future, Jesus lives in a human body. He gave up omnipresence. I can't imagine that kind of a sacrifice. And he is now represented here on earth through the Holy Spirit who represents him on the earth. It's incredible. And there's more, more that Christ gave up that we will study for eternity. But he paid a, an infinite price. And the price that was necessary, two things that were necessary to save us, in addition to his accomplishment, to save the species, he did it in his own personhood by becoming human. To save any other sinner, two things had to be provided for us. The truth that destroys the lies of Satan and wins us to trust. We had to have truth to win us back to trust. And then in trust, we open the heart and we receive a new identity, a new name, the Bible says. He writes his name on us, a new character, a new nature, however you want to. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We receive the perfection of Christ imparted to us. And we couldn't have developed that. He developed it for us. It's a beautiful. And it was symbolically taught in the bread and the wine. 
the flesh and the blood, the flesh, Christ is the word made flesh, the truth. We ingest the word. We ingest the bread. We're ingesting the truth that he revealed. And that truth wins us to trust. And we open the heart and he pours his life. The life is in the blood and we get a new life. The life of Christ becomes ours in the character, principles and motives and desires that we live. And that's the wine or the, or the blood. And so the price was paid. It was not paid to God. God was already on our side. It was not paid to God's law. God's law is already perfect in the principles of life. The price was paid in the same way you paid a price of giving a kidney to your child. Who, got, who, who received that price? The dying child. We, received, we needed the truth, and we needed a new nature. And it was paid to us to save us. Boy, I had a lot more to go through. In fact, I want to read this. Right, we'll, we'll close with this. I know I'm over time. Paul describes this destruction of the fallen man and the carnal nature, the infection of fear and selfishness that we inherited from Adam and the creation of a new sinless humanity. He describes it in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. I'm going to read it from the NIV and then I'm going to read it from the remedy and we'll close with that. Here's from the NIV. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Why the blood of Christ? Because again, how, what do you think? When you hear that, you're thinking penal, the, the, the blood debt payment offered to God to pay your debt? Are you thinking what I just described? Blood is a metaphor. It's a life. It's through the life of Christ that we partake, that we're renewed. Oh, okay, that makes much more sense. Keep going. For he himself is our peace who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And this is how, how it reads in the remedy. But now you, whose minds were once far away, who were practicing the principles of selfishness and survival of the fittest, have been enlightened and brought near to God and are in unity with Christ through the truth revealed when he died. For Christ himself is the remedy that heals the species and brings peace. He has removed fear and selfishness that cause division, mistrust, prejudice, and hostility. He did this by partaking our human condition, and via the exercise of his human brain, he, he loved perfectly, thereby destroying in his flesh, in the humanity he partook, the survival of the fittest drive along with the lies of Satan. In this way, he destroyed the need for the law with its, all its regulations to expose Satan's lies and methods. His purpose was to be the template of a new humanity born out of the unification of the two. Our selfish, sin-infected condition merged with his sinless state, thereby purging selfishness from the human heart and transforming, healing, renewing, regenerating, and recreating humanity back to God's original ideal. And in this new being to reconcile the human race, regardless of ethnic background, into loving unity with God and each other through the revelation of truth at the cross by which he destroyed the lies of Satan, reestablished trust, and removed fear and selfishness and hostility. That's what I think he accomplished. So much more than paying a legal penalty. It's so much more than trying to plead off an angry God and have him not be mad at us. So much more profound, so much deeper, so much more reassuring. It's so much more uh, uh, reliably wins us to trust. 
And that's the thing. Do you trust him? Open your heart. He will pour spirit and and transform you. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for what you've accomplished for us that we could have never accomplished. We open our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, cut away all of the ties to this world that, that impair us from being bright lights for you. Trim the wick of our lives so that we can burn bright at this time in history and the light of the heavenly truth might enlighten this world and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.